Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ah, welcome. Uh, you're listening to the uh, Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. Uh, thanks to the Ruminations crew for another great show, highlighting, highlighting issues around homelessness. Um, hi, I'm Bill. Uh, this week we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, and we're going to be talking about the deadly intersections of guns and family violence. And I guess it's sort of in keeping with our Living Free theme, Shared Experience Save Lives. Um, and today I'd like to welcome Jackie to the 3CR studio. Hi, Jackie. Hi, thank you. Uh, Jackie's recently been working with a group called Global and Collective Consulting, and they've been monitoring how well courts protect victims of family violence from armed abusers in the USA. Um, Jackie, that's a pretty unusual place for an Australian to be. That's uh, right. <laughs> working in the USA in gun violence, uh, gun violence and family violence. So how did you come to work there? So I was born in Melbourne, I grew up here in Melbourne, and I studied law in Melbourne and worked as a lawyer here for a few years. And during that time, I was increasingly interested in domestic violence um, and you know, particularly, I think there's been increasing awareness in Australia about the prevalence of domestic violence and just how seriously we have to take it as a society. And so I um, had the opportunity to work with the Victorian government during the Royal Commission into Family Violence, which is a real turning point in my career, um, uh, to be part of such a landmark study into the causes and effects of family violence in Australia and also into creating solutions about that. So I was um, working with the Victorian government on its implementation of those recommendations, um, which was exciting because the Victorian government um, did commit to implementing all of the Royal Commission's recommendations. And, um, you know, I think it's important here on Living Free also to talk about um, what we know about domestic violence and its intersection with addiction and with firearms and all kinds of other um, issues that can increase the severity of violence or the frequency or its occurrence. Um, so the, uh, the Royal Commission to Family Violence did a lot of research um, and it concluded that family violence really has causes at a population level and also at individual levels. And when we're looking at the population level, we're thinking about things like uh, attitudes to women and attitudes to the acceptance of violence across the community, which can um, enable and encourage violent behaviour. And then also individual level factors. So that includes also obviously um, respect for women and children, respect for um, other community members and family members. Um, but um, alcohol and drug addiction, um, you know, are often involved in family violence incidents. So Victoria Police did some research and found that in around one in five of the events that Victoria Police were called out to, um, they were pretty confident that alcohol was involved. Um and so the Royal Commission concluded that while alcohol or drug addiction or use certainly isn't the driving cause or the start of family violence, it can increase the severity and frequency of violence. Um, it's a real risk factor. And it's not just a risk factor for perpetrators, it's a risk factor for victims as well. So um, people who are impaired by drugs or impaired by alcohol um, are particularly at risk of being abused themselves. Oh, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting fact. Yes, it was very interesting. And it's good that the... Um, 
commission had that focus on both victims and perpetrators and, and ways that we can keep people safe. Um, and another uh, issue the Royal Commission identified, of course, was access to firearms, which we in Australia don't think about so much, but the commission did look at um, and heard some really compelling testimony from witnesses. So people talked about um, you know, their experiences of abusive relationships where um, maybe a gun wasn't fired, but some, uh, a perpetrator might be cleaning their guns in front of a victim, making it very clear the risk that they were at, um, or threatening to kill themselves with a gun or to, or to use a, a gun either in self-harm or harm of another. So it was clear in the Recruitment's report as well that um, guns are a factor in domestic violence in Australia and a really deadly one. So anyway, that was the experience of the, the Royal Commission to Family Violence. And at the end of that, I was fascinated by how we could continue to improve our response to domestic violence. And that led me to go and study in the US. Uh, so I did my master's in New York. I was really fortunate to get a scholarship to do that from the Sir John Monash Foundation. Um, and I did a year-long master's of law at Columbia University. And What did you um, specialise in? <clears throat> so I specialised in domestic violence. Yeah. Um, and that was fabulous because there's so much expertise in the US around domestic violence. And, um, you know, I know that Australia has looked to the US in some of those situations, um, but it was also great to come from Australia and come from a place that had done so much work and really world-leading work in that area. Um, so then I graduated from that degree and had to find a job and I started working for a women's legal service, um, again, working, focusing in domestic violence. Um, and then I got this fantastic job opportunity to work with Global and Collective, which is a consultancy that um, really helps um, empower social change movements and more specifically to start working in gun violence prevention which is not where I had expected I would be when I left Australia. I'm sure. So um, I guess it comes down to the fact that Australia has had some of the strongest gun control since the Port Arthur massacre. Yeah absolutely and so what is so interesting about working in America as an Australian and working in gun violence prevention in particular is you know you come from a small country and you don't know if people know much about it but what people do know is that Australia is so famous for having actually taken a really strong stand and responded to the threat of mass shootings so um, people in the US often ask me about Port Arthur they ask me about what the Australian government actually did I think people are also quite interested to know that Australia had a pretty good history of um, gun violence prevention before that, so it wasn't the first time that governments had come together to try to improve firearm laws. Um, but it's very much a cultural moment that people are aware of. And it's interesting for me because I was, um, I don't know if I should disclose this on radio, but I was only 10 years old when Port Arthur occurred. So I do have some memories of it. I remember watching the news and seeing John Howard in that bulletproof vest. And I remember seeing the piles of guns, guns that were being, yeah. um, had been taken back from people but I didn't have such a strong memory probably of the surroundings of it so Bill you'd probably yeah. um, have a bit more of a memory of that without disclosing your age either. <laughs> yeah well, probably I would. Um, one of the interesting factors I guess is um, you know I, I have some ex I have had exposure to family violence I have had exposure to you know a, a parent with alcohol problems um, and we um, we did have guns. My dad used to shoot a lot as a as a young man. Mm. He was in the army, so um, you know. But he before he joined the army, he was very. His family was very active. They lived in a sort of semi-rural uh, property, 
and used to go um, rabbit shooting and things. So I grew up with, um, I think Dad had two double-barrel shotguns in the in his wardrobe. Mm. Uh, there was no idea of locking things up or keeping things safe. No. And he had a, a belt that had um, probably, I don't know, 12 cartridges in it. And when my father was drinking, which he did almost every day, if things turned sour, he would often, you know, talk about getting the gun mm. and talk about, you know, it was intimidation um, to a large degree. Um, and my role in the family was to ensure that there was no ammunition, that you might have had a gun, but it wasn't loaded. So yeah. as, a, as a child, young child, probably, I don't know, 10, mm. my job was to do that, which when you think back is, is pretty terrifying. Um, but that was normal in mm. our house, uh, and it's probably normal in lots of people's houses. Um, and then when the gun amnesty came in, I, mm. I grew up shooting as well, not mm. quite as much as my father. But um, one of the things that I did, I had a twenty-two, and in one of the amnesties, mm. I actually walked into a police station with a twenty-two rifle, <laughs> And the policeman suggested that probably wasn't the thing to do. I don't think it's the way that they recommend <laughs> turning in your firearm, no, walking in, just carrying it to a police station. No. So, um, yeah. So that, but that was my naivety. And that mm. was what you could do in those days. You could carry a gun around and it wasn't a particular concern mm. unless you walked into a police station. <laughs> well, of course. And I think something that's so apparent from moving from Australia to America um, and, you know, thank you for talking about that i think that experience i think what i have discovered is just how varied people's experiences around guns are so i think people of my generation in australia who grew up in cities guns are very foreign to us and um because of a history of really strong laws protecting us from firearms and particularly since 1996 um but also culturally it's it's really um not something that i had seen much of Whereas I think for people that grow up in rural areas in Australia, of course, guns are more prevalent. Yeah. Um, you know, of course, in Australia, you can um, get a firearm license. There's a lot more restrictions and checks and balances than there are in most states in America. Um, um, but many people do have access to guns. Um, and in the US, you see different experiences as well. So I live in New York City, and that's a place where it's pretty rare to see a yeah. gun. Um, but I, you know, do work in other places. I do work in Rhode Island and... Um, you know, I've travelled for work to Atlanta and to Texas, um, and there are such different cultural norms around guns. And I think that for many children, growing up with guns makes them very normal in your adult life. Um, and so, just that, I think, I think that for young people like me, it's been very. Um, I shouldn't say fortunate. I think it's been very intentional on behalf of governments in Australia to um, make that not a normal part of our upbringing. Um, but, um, you know, it's important to acknowledge that for you it was and for many other people it's been a really um, important and at times very um, frightening and intimidating aspect growing up. Yeah, and, and I guess the other one is the, the generational thing that if you have something and it's taken away, it seems like a great loss. Mm, absolutely, yeah. And you see it as your right to be able to do things, but uh, you've also got to see it from the other context that it is it is a, a potential threat. It's, you know, it's a... It's something that can do enormous harm and very little benefit. Of course. And I think that we've seen great social change on a number of issues like that over the course of my life and I'm sure your life. Yeah. Um, 
you know, we've seen the transition from smoking to being considered healthy to being considered maybe unhealthy to really being um, a serious health threat. Similarly, we've seen huge strides in safety of things like cars and speed limits and seatbelts and all these areas where something that was a traffic signals. Exactly. (laughs) Maybe that's even well before my time. Um, But things or a normal part of life were recognized as really serious risks to safety that people wouldn't accept anymore. And then huge social change on that basis. Um, And I think in Australia, we've had a lot of that movement already. And in America, it's really varies. So really, um, most firearm regulations happening at a state by state level. And so you see big differences. So, um, you know, a city like New York, very few firearms, a state like Texas, there's a lot. Um, and, um, of course, that means that there's these different experiences, but also it means that there's, um, in some ways, a, a um, fascinating breeding ground for looking at what laws work, um, what laws maybe don't work, um, and how you can try to reduce risk, um, or the really serious risk that firearms can pose in a society. Yeah. One of the other interesting factors is the, the recent um, impact of the gun lobby on elections in two states, Victoria and Tasmania. Mm. Particularly Tasmania um, appear to be inclined to weaken gun laws. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so I mean, that's been happening while I've been living outside Australia, but I have been seeing the news about it. um, And it's so concerning. I think that, um, you know, in Australia, in the period leading up to Port Arthur, we saw a number of shootings and even we saw a number of mass shootings. Um, And the period after Port Arthur, we had a period without a single mass shooting, um, one that it would be incredible to, I think, um, in a country like America, it would be just incredible to even believe that that was possible. Um, and the fact that um, there are people seeking to unwind that, I think, is shocking. It's something that we should all um, not be complacent about. That we shouldn't um, get used to the fact and think that maybe Australia is just culturally different. No, I think that um, Australia has taken really deliberate steps and each state has um, had as part of that to make sure that firearms are not normal and they're not in the hands of particularly dangerous people. Um, and, and, you know, it's important to understand that in Australia that's not just blanket law, they're also specific. So, um, you know, from my understanding, domestic violence perpetrators have their licences cancelled or suspended while they're subject to restraining orders, all those types of pieces um, that not only seek to reduce the number of guns across Australia, um, just more more broadly, but specifically target people who we think are a real risk to others who've already demonstrated by their behaviour that they're capable of harming others and maybe um, have the intention to do that again in the future. Um, and to unwind any of those protections, I think, would be really dangerous. Um, so I think, yeah, Australia shouldn't um, shouldn't think that it's by accident that we've um, had been you know, relatively so safe from firearms. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Jackie. Uh, well, listen, uh, we might go to a break, but after the break, we'll be talking more about um, the intersection of gun violence and domestic violence in the USA. Uh, you're listening to The Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial, and 3CR on digital radio. Uh, we've got podcasts of The Living Free Show available on our webpage, at, which is at 3cr.org.au forward slash livingfree, and they're also available on iTunes and your preferred podcast medium. Uh, if you'd like to contact us, you can either call the station on 9419 8377 or send us an email at 3 at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, we usually do a community service announcement, and... 
this time. We've got one by the LGBTIQ Family Violence Service. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Uh, welcome back. Um, I'm talking with Jackie. We're talking about gun violence and domestic violence in the USA and its relevance to Australia. Um, so, Jackie... What's the problem with gun violence in the US as it applies to family violence? Yeah, sure. So probably here in Australia, you've heard um, in the broader family violence context, a lot of really concerning statistics. So we know that approximately one woman is killed by an intimate partner every week in Australia. Um, So keeping that in mind, I'll talk a little bit about the situation in America. So um, approximately 100 Americans... um, are killed each day by gun violence. And in that context, there has been 173 mass shootings in America between 2009 and 2017. So it's an eight-year period. It's completely... And I think um, here in Australia, you know, you hear on the news about... um, The the ones, Yeah, 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 sadly, the... the, um, you know, particularly shocking. So, you know, just in the past year, we've seen a horrific attack on a synagogue in Pittsburgh, um, you know, places... Of worship, schools, um, workplaces, discos. Um, exactly, places yeah. where people should be safe and um, you know in, enjoying the, their community and, and worship and education, all those kinds of things. So that's that's the broader number of mass shootings, um, and of these, a majority involve domestic violence, which I think is a really um, unknown element of mass shootings. That very commonly there's a um, and a family member who was killed as part of them. So, um, you know, in some of those more famous mass shootings, you've seen examples where the shooter might have um, killed a family member and then, and then gone. Then gone. Yeah. Exactly, that's yeah. right. Um, so you see that, that element of something that is often the, the overlooked part of it. Um, but I think we also forget that um, mass shootings can be entirely domestic violence and that can occur when an individual kills their partner and their children and themselves. And a mass shooting is usually defined depending on um, exactly who is talking about it as the death or the shooting death of uh, four or five people um, other than the shooter or in some definitions, including the shooter. Um, and there are many family circumstances and really horrifying ones in the US where um, a person will kill their partner, usually their female partner, um, murder their children and perhaps turn the gun on themselves as, as part of that. And that's a number of those um, those mass shootings or those situations. And we know that um, perhaps even more shockingly, because I think that we're used to hearing about mass shootings in schools out of America, that 86% of the children killed in mass shootings are, are domestic violence victims. Wow. Yeah, it's really, I think the perception we all have is that um, <laughs> when children are killed in mass shootings, it's, um, you know, this... Um, unforeseeable event 
um, really these are, are frequently foreseeable experiences where there's um, been a history of domestic violence, there has been interventions with domestic violence that have not been successful, um, and where family members are killed and where children and young children are killed. Um, and so then to put that in the broader context... Can I, can I just yeah, take it back? So that mm. means that somebody goes to a school, say, to kill their children and kills other kids as well. Is that the way it... Or, um, or like, primarily kills their children, other family members, a family event. Um, or I think um, one of the examples I can bring to mind is um, a man who killed his mother and then went to a school. Um, it really can affect all kinds of different people. Right, in it. Okay. Um, yeah. But the majority of those children, it's not a, a mass shooting at a school. It's a mass shooting in a family situation. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I guess to put that in, in the broader context, we know that there are one million women alive in America today who have been shot or shot at by an intimate partner, which is yeah. a huge number of people, a million women. Yeah. Um, and we also know, um, based on a lot of research, that there are around four and a half million women who've been threatened with a firearm in the right. context of an intimate okay. relationship. And um, I think particularly thinking about what you were talking about before, we know that um, guns aren't only used to injure and to kill other people, but they're used to terrorise and control them. Um, you don't need to pull a trigger to um, cause real lasting damage with a gun um, because because they are so lethal. Everybody knows the real risk of a gun. Um, and that's a, an element of domestic violence that we often don't think about, those invisible wounds. Yeah, okay. Um, so is, is people like the NRA, is there an impact of them in the problem or are they just fueling the problem? Um. Yeah, it's a really complicated question. I think that the, um, you know, over the course of decades, the NRA has been very resistant to um, even very common sense gun safety laws. And the result of that is that there's just a huge number of firearms out there in communities. Um, I um, I wouldn't be able to tell you precisely about which pieces of legislation they've always been um, for and against, but I would say that my general understanding is that, um, you know, they haven't come out really strongly um, to say that domestic violence perpetrators shouldn't have access to guns, nothing like that. Um, things that I think most community members would think are pretty common sense and straightforward and yeah. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that we have laws in place about for Australia. Um, you know, the, the real mission of the NRA has always been to just increase access to firearms in all circumstances. Um, and, you know, domestic violence I don't think is any exception to that. Mm. Yes. Um, so what is the solution... You know, is is there an easy solution or is there a complicated solution? So there's not an easy solution, but there has been enough research done to really say that the intersection of guns and domestic violence is a really lethal one. So the research says that um, when you combine those two things, the risk that the victim will be killed increases by 500%, which is a huge increase in a risk factor. Mm. <clears throat> For um, any, anything else, we'd take action immediately? I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, you know, we also know in domestic violence that recent separation is a very big risk factor. So I think that's about a three and a half times um, increase in lethality as well. And sorry, when I say lethality, I mean the risk of, of being killed in a domestic violence situation. Um, and so we, we really can scientifically look back and say... Um, had, know, we, had we acted, yeah. Yeah, and, and access to guns and particularly access to guns in... Um, moments in the, in the course of domestic violence yeah. where, um, you know, we know that people are at higher risk, perhaps when they're leaving a violent relationship 
which is often the time when they're interacting with services, when they're going to court, asking for a straining order, contacting the police, calling triple zero, reaching out to someone at school or anything like that. Um, and that's a really risky time. So there has been some action on this in the US. Um, so at the federal level, um, the federal government many years ago um, created a number of groups, uh, exemptions, people who were prohibited from possessing firearms. So if you try to buy a firearm in one of those groups, if uh, important caveat, if you're in a state with strong background check laws, that yep. should be picked up yeah. um, and you should be prohibited from buying that firearm. Um and it's illegal for you to possess it. So you're actually committing a federal crime. And domestic violence perpetrators are actually in that group at, at the federal level. So okay. yep. um, people have committed domestic violence crimes. So, um, you know, it could be assault in a family context as a, as a legal definition of it. Um, but also people who are subject to some um, family violence restraining orders as well. Um, and again, there's a bit of variation about who is covered for that um, and the federal definition really is interested in um, spouses, not girlfriend-boyfriend-type relationships or other dating relationships. Um, but that law is there at the federal level. What we've learned over the course of many years of watching that law play out is that the existence of a federal crime isn't much help in a day-to-day -day sense because the FBI isn't going around checking <laughs> up on domestic violence perpetrators. Um, and for that reason, a number of states have started taking action. So there are some states that have... Um, made sure that their laws mirror the federal law. So as a um, consequence of state law, you're a domestic violence perpetrator, you can't purchase a firearm, you're prohibited from possessing it. Um, so that's another important step forward to make sure that um, your local police officer is aware that you'll be breaking the law if you're walking with a firearm rather than having to be some far away federal agency. Yes. <laughs> um, and then the, the most recent step in that journey has been the realisation that just saying to someone, you can't purchase a firearm anymore, um, isn't much good when they have a number of firearms already and there's no clear pathway as to what they're supposed to do with those. It's, um, and you're from a legal perspective, it's also worrying that someone um, you know, might walk out of a courtroom that's subject to a restraining order and not realise that actually it's a crime now for them to possess a gun. So yeah. a number of states now have started passing laws and many of them quite recently to require um, domestic violence perpetrators when they get served with a family violence restraining order to actually surrender their firearms. And that's a really important step in that in this process. Um, and there's been some research on this. There was a really great study released in 2017 where they did an analysis comparing states that had these laws actually requiring firearm surrender versus states that had laws that said um, it's legal for you to possess a firearm. You should. Yeah, yeah you can't have one, but yeah. they didn't really take that next step to enforce it. Yeah. Um, and they found it, it, the short of it is that they found that it worked. Um, so states with firearm surrender laws saw a significant reduction in overall intimate partner homicides. Um, and what you often compare here is how much did the gun-related homicide rate drop, but how much did the overall homicide rate drop? Because what you want to make sure when you're passing any law is whether you're just shifting a problem somewhere else. Yep. So if we get rid of guns or people start using other forms. Yep. Exactly. Yep. And the yep. answer is no, actually. When you reduce access to guns, we actually have to surrender your firearms. You see an overall drop in in um, in murders, not mm. just a drop in murders using guns. Yeah. Um, actually, a lot of people use that argument that, mm. you know, that you've got a knife. Like, it's not a gun's not an issue if you've got access to a knife. But you're saying it is. It is. The research really clearly shows that. And you know what? I think it's intuitive as well. I think we all know how lethal guns are, how immediate they are, um, how they allow you to cause harm. Um, Remotely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and 
it shouldn't be a surprise that that holds true in domestic violence circumstances. And the other area that's in really strong research about this is also about um, suicides. And I know that in Australia, um, one of the great success stories of our um, stronger firearm laws after Port Arthur was a really significant reduction, I mean, obviously, in, in suicides involving firearms, but in overall suicide. So really there wasn't, you know, you know, you look for this replacement rate in the research, it just wasn't there. Um, yeah. You know, and we, and we know also from our um, research on violence, that violence can be um, very immediate, that people um, uh, can be moved to violence quickly and that access to a gun allows you to complete an act of violence right. quickly yeah. um, in a way that other weapons simply don't. So that really has been a huge success story, this discovery that... Um, you know, people are already, um, it's already illegal for them to possess a gun. Just that little next step, actually giving it back into the police station and having them hold it for the period of the restraining order, that mm. that can save lives. Right. Okay. Um, one of the other things that's quite interesting, I understand, is this evolution of community resistance to guns mm. that it, I think it was triggered from um, the mass shootings. So how, how did that begin? Yeah, absolutely. So the the group that I have done the most work with and which is the biggest gun violence prevention group in America is called Every Town for Gun Safety. And the um, the origin of that organisation really is in local activism. And um, really the starting point for that was a group of mayors. It was 15 mayors for cities across America um, who each saw these really acute issues of gun violence in their local areas and were so frustrated with the lack of ability of the federal government in particular, but also their state governments to pass any kind of meaningful gun safety legislation. So they came together to start sharing strategies. And, you know, it's all the things that um, smaller groups can do. It's looking at, like, what were their um, law enforcement officers doing? How were they tracking guns? How do they know which guns are in their area? So that's, that started off in about 2006. That was really the beginning of this movement. Um, of course, in that time, you see this really frightening escalation of mass shootings. Um, and in 2012, there was the shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School, which I think um, was a real watershed moment for many Americans to see, um, you know, a, a primary school, children, you know, five, six and seven, um, and their teachers, you know, people who were there every day um, teaching their Cares. young children, yeah. yeah, caring for them and teaching them to become, you know, good kids and good adults and all that to be... Um, gunned down um, was really just so shocking to the nation. And as that was unfolding, there was a woman called Shannon Watts who was um, watching that unfold. She had small children herself and she went online and started looking around, you know, what group can I join to try to agitate for better gun safety laws, to talk to other people about this. And she really realised that there wasn't anything. It um, was, I guess, an issue in American politics that hadn't seen much community organising up until that point. Um, or had seen it as very local organising rather than a, a group that would come together across the country. So she founded a group called Mums Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. And it's a mouthful, but I think it really does describe um, who they are. I think particularly parents were so shocked by the idea that, um, you know, that their children's lives could be so dramatically affected. And, and of course, that, that is true, um, you know, when you look at actual incidences of mass shootings and, and the fear that they provoke. But I, I think... Um, you know, it's that second part, the fear that they provoke that is so pervasive in America. And, you know, I, I have um, friends who have school-aged children and they talk also about um, 
the terrible impacts day to day, not just of the knowledge that mass shootings occur, because I think that that's something that you know in this life, you know, there are dangerous yeah. things, um, but the really practical way that that affects schools. So many schools in America are required to have active shooter drills, which means that children across the country are subjected to um, a simulation of what it would be like to be trapped in their classroom with someone shooting at them. <laughs> and it's hard to think of a... Um, more terrifying thing. Yeah, more terrifying experience for children. Um and I think it's incredibly difficult for schools to know how to deal with this as well, to try to prepare students and teachers, but also to protect the mental health of kids. Um, so all, I think um, for that reason, parents in particular have really um, grabbed the mantle and um, been very focused on gun violence prevention and on um, better gun safety laws, just because it affects them not only in the abstract sense, but in a really practical sense too. Yeah. So I, I guess I digress because I was supposed to do yeah. it every time, wasn't I? Um, but... Over the period of time, mayors, the um, mayors against illegal guns and Mums Night Action came together and founded Every Town for Gun Safety. And Every Town um, is the largest gun safety organization in America. It has four million supporters spread across all fifty states. Um, and uh, those three groups, other groups, have been really active. Have been working incredibly hard um, to try to shift the needle in America in terms of public opinion. That. Um, you know, that, um, that it's important. Yeah, that it's important, but also that it's possible. I think yeah. that in Australia, um, yeah. it, it was possible, mm. right? We, we saw it happen and, and yeah. unfold before us, and we saw state governments and the federal government um, actually taking meaningful, immediate action. And I think that in America for a long time, there was a sense that that would just never happen. And particularly after Sandy Hook, you know, almost the most um, shocking experience of gun violence you can imagine, and there still wasn't change. Um, and those three groups working together with other groups have really been very focused on um, laws that can be passed. So the surrender laws I was talking about is a great example of an area where they've really focused in on a law that can save lives and started um, working with states to pass those. Um, but also all kinds of really practical things. So Mums Demand Action has a program called Be Smart, where they're educating parents about the impact of guns. And it's really stuff that's very simple, but people have to talk about. So if you have a gun in your home, how is it stored? Kids are curious. Kids find things. Kids don't listen to when you just tell them not to touch something. Um, what is your plan for your curious child? Um, yeah. So that I guess that's the, the scope of work. Everything from mm conversations between individual parents do you have a gun in your home right through to can we pass um a law requiring firearms thrown in your state to affect everyone in the state right okay okay well after the break we'll look at the steps being taken to ensure enforcement of gun laws you're listening to living free on 3cr on digital radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming i'm chatting with jackie and we're talking about enforcing gun laws to protect family violence victims. Um, so, Jackie, um, here we're going to talk about uh, the influence of court action in protecting families. So why, why is that important to look at what's happening in the courts? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you can... I, I think we sort of alluded earlier before the break to the fact that um, many states taking these extra steps and trying to really improve their laws to make sure that um, dangerous people and particularly domestic violence perpetrators don't have access to guns. And we spoke in particular about why access to guns at really re the most risky points of domestic violence, so um, times when victims are seeking help, seeking a restraining order, maybe are trying to leave an abusive relationship, um, 
why it is so much more risky for there to be a gun in the situation than we talked about how um, when there is as a five times um, higher risk that the victim will be killed. Um, and you know, to put that in context, actually, I was looking at the statistics over the break and um, in Australia, about 10% of women who are killed by intimate partners are killed by a gun. And in America, it's 50%. So you can really see the difference Ooh. in terms of... Um, That's phenomenal, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, five times the amount of, wow. of um, uh, a firearm being the, the weapon used to, to murder an intimate partner. Um, so why look at courts? The reason really is that... You know, you might think, especially in the advocacy and campaigning space, we can be very focused on passing laws and getting them in place. Um, but once a law is in place, we rely on courts to apply those laws and, um, you know, uh, courts to apply them and law enforcement to enforce them. And if those things aren't happening properly, then, um, then you can't um, celebrate the win of passing the law because you don't know that it's actually saving the lives that you intended to have saved. Um, so that is why, as an organisation, um, many of these gun violence organisations... Um, really are looking not just to pass good laws, but to look at what happens next, not just the to move on to the next project. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. the effectiveness yeah. of them. Um, and I think just more broadly in our society, we are very focused on politicians and on government ministers and what they are doing, um, they're doing their jobs, um, and how they're doing them and the detail and all of that. And we don't often think about courts that often, but they're so important. Yeah. Um, so there's this real movement to start um, watching and understanding how courts apply laws. And, you know, in, in the big picture sense, there's this question, um, do they apply them as we intended them? So if you pass a law that requires um, there to be an order in every family violence case that you have to surrender your firearms, is that happening just at the basic level? Um, there's also a lot of detail behind that. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about all the things that go into implementing a law, and it's not just courts, but... Um, you know, you have to understand how information gets to a judge in the first place. So does a judge know that a firearm um, is present in the relationship? Is the judge actually going to ask about a firearm in the courtroom? Is that part of their standard practice or are they only doing it, um, you know, in some cases that they're extra worried? Um, you know, similarly, are police officers making notes of weapons and including that in the evidence going to courts? Um, so that's this, this broader picture that we want to understand um, how how these laws work. Um whether that is to uh, go back and give some feedback to courts. You know, we're concerned that um, a law isn't being implemented all the time or people are interpreting it differently and we need to come together and have a shared interpretation. Or uh, hopefully and ideally it's finding out that some courts are doing a really fantastic job and then being able to um, share that good experience with other areas because states are passing these laws one by one um, and it's not you don't want everyone to have to start from scratch as to how to implement them. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, we know a bit more about Australian um, legal practice and approach is that we tend to look outwards when we're looking at framing laws. We look at experience overseas and interstate, mm. but in the US they tend to look inwards and they don't tend to be so, um, I guess, investigative. They think they've got the answer. Well, I think I would say that, it's, I mean, America is so big, 50 states. It's a real... Um, melting pot of experiences and often when you're trying to implement a law in America someone has done something like it already in America already yeah. and so I think there probably is a bit less of a interest in looking to how other countries have done it because there's maybe a bit of an assumption that they have had a haven't had such a similar experience but there is a bit more of a trust that another state that has implemented it 
might know what they're doing. I mean, even that's, I, I should temper that a little. I think that there's a real difference across different states in America. And, um, you know, if you're a judge in Texas, you might not think that what Look a judge is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you don't know that those city slickers don't know anything about guns. And um, maybe you'd be right even. Maybe New York should be learning from Texas, actually, in that situation. <laughs> um, but certainly my experience has been that what I have found most effective is to try to find good practice in America and in similar states in America. And I think that that's a pretty common human experience as well, that we're more influenced by people like us. Yeah. So what sort of things do you do in the courts? Yeah. So um, an advocacy technique in America that I haven't experienced here in Australia, but I think is relatively common over there is what's called court observing. And, um, you know, I guess it, it is what it says in the box is observing courts, but uh you're talking really more about specific programs where you train a group of volunteers um, who become really knowledgeable, who know all about what the gun violence prevention laws are in their state, um, you know, when, in what circumstances judges are required to make a restraining order, when they're required to include a firearm surrender order, um, really well-versed on how things should be working. Train them in the law, train them in how to behave in courts, how courts work. You know, courts are often quite mysterious places. We try to demystify those for our volunteers. Um, and then to go and sit in courts and watch cases. Um, so um, programs I've been involved with have had all kinds of just ordinary people who come are interested in the project, you know, care about gun violence prevention, um, who go and sit in court for a morning and see perhaps 10 domestic violence cases come through and they'll see how the judge... Um, is treating those people and they'll take notes. So we've got a, a survey people use. So they'll mark down, you know, did the judge ask about about gun violence? Um, if someone gave evidence about guns, what was that? We try to build up a picture of how guns are actually um, presenting themselves in these cases. Did the judge make a restraining order? Did they issue a firearm surrender order? Um, you know, and all these details we're talking about, did they explain it to the person? Did the person, you know, do, do we feel confident that... Um, you mean the perpetrator? Yeah, yeah. well, I mean... Yeah. Really, ideally, both both, um, parties, both yeah. parties really understand, understand that. Yeah. But particularly <clears throat> the perpetrator. I mean, if you're going to be subject to criminal penalties for having a gun once that court proceeding is over, you have to know about it. You can't yeah. walk out, not really sure, couldn't really hear what the judge was saying. It was all a bit confusing. And then a week later, find out you're going to be charged with a felony because you have a gun. That's yeah. a terrible outcome for perpetrators as well who are trying to, um, when they're trying to follow the law and, and not reoffend. So, um, so we're really focused on all those areas. And, and what we want to do is collect a whole lot of information about this. So not just to sit and watch a couple of cases and then conclude that things are working or not working, but build up as detailed a picture as possible. So have volunteers in courts all the time. Also, um, you know, I think it's fantastic and important for the public to be in courts and understanding them and seeing what judges do. Um, it really is the least viewed branch of government. And so we hope to redress that. Um, gathering this information, um, and then collectively we come back together with the volunteers, identify successes, identify gaps, talk about how we might be able to um, feed this information back to courts and all the other groups that interact with courts to teach them about um, what's working in areas that we think that could work even better. Right, okay. Um, so in sharing that information, how widely do you share that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think... The projects that I've been involved with, it's really varied. So sometimes you do a project like this um, with the real intention of like making sure that the public knows what's happening. Other times a court might really want that feedback. And so I've seen programs where, um, you know, you look at the, all the data and you pull it together and then give it to the court, just to the court at first to say, you know, we've identified that 
um, things are going really well on a whole number of fronts, but these ones aren't going so well and give it a bit of a chance to turn the ship around and improve practice. Um, I, you know, I don't think that public shaming is a very effective um, way of changing people's minds. Um, well, it, does, it doesn't work on the government. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it works on anyone. Um, so, yeah, I, I've been involved in a number of projects using this technique now in the US and I've seen different advocacy options at each moment. But I think that the first step always is trying to get this really accurate information. And for our volunteers as well, I think it means that they become experts in a way that actually court staff often aren't. You know, if you're a judge, you're only ever in your own courtrooms, in your own cases, and you don't get to see what you look like. And something that sounds really reasonable to you might sound um, confusing to someone on the other side who hasn't, who's not there every day. Yep. But our volunteers, you know, they were in different courtrooms, seeing different judges on different days. They get a really nuanced picture of that. Um, so in some ways I think it's a real service that volunteers can provide to courts. Yeah, so it's free, effectively a free service for the government. It is in some ways, isn't yeah, it? Um, yeah. um, but also one that really involves like ordinary people in how laws are implemented, which is so yeah. important. It's, yeah. um, I think it's, it's the hard work of change, much more than passing the law. Yeah. Um, and I think that what also comes out of that is those more detailed questions. Because when you sit there and watch a few cases, you start to really wonder, um, you know, what's, like, what really is happening next? A judge makes his surrender order. They explained it. The person walked out of the courtroom. Um, but how do we know whether the gun actually was surrendered? And you start seeing little gaps. Like the police officers know that the gun was surrendered. It was brought into them. But if they don't fax the form back to the court, and the court doesn't know. Um, so I, I found it um, a really effective way of actually identifying those issues. So I think that um, people who sit and watch a number of cases have a much better sense of how the whole system could be working together. Yeah. So is it then a requirement for people to come back to court to, to, to say that they have complied, or is that just assumed? So it varies state to state. The states that I've been involved with, so an example, um, in Rhode Island, when one of these orders is made, you have to surrender your firearm. You then have usually 24 hours to actually surrender the firearm, so go into the police department and hand it over. You get a receipt so they can give it back to you at the end of the period. Um, and then you usually have to file paperwork with the court pretty quickly, so another two or three days um, after that has passed. That's really the deadline you have to file the paperwork by. But... You know, at that stage, is not a, a the judge isn't in court looking at your case. Really, it's been put back in a filing cabinet because when all's going well in a domestic violence case, yeah. um, the judge doesn't want to hear any more. They yeah. um, they make the order and it should be complied with. Um, so that's an area that we've realised um, between different states. There are many states where there's not really a process for how to do that checking back, um, and it's not really one person's responsibility either, which always helps yeah. when you're trying to implement a law, make it someone's job. Cross-jurisdictional, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. what you know, um, there's all these spots where people can fall through the cracks, and I think um, whether or not someone's filed their paperwork, that's one of those spots. Um, so that's one area that we hope to really learn more about and provide some guidance to other jurisdictions about the best way they can do it. Mm. I think that was one of the uh, findings in the Victorian um, Royal Commission on Family Violence was mm. the procedural was as important as the law. Absolutely. Um, that's, that's so correct. And I think that that is true not only because of all those things that have to happen. You realise that, um, you, know, you know this in your own life, for anything to happen, there's so many small jobs that have yeah. to be done. But also people experience all of that. So they, they have to interact with so many different places. And when they, and I think that we have an expectation um, in our modern world that if you go to the police station and file your paperwork, um, 
and they know about that. It's sort of it can seem crazy to have to walk over to the courthouse and do it there as well when. Um, you know, governments probably could have a single system that put all these things together. So I think that um, it'll be a really interesting part of how our modern society starts responding better. And I know the Royal Commission really said information sharing is a, one of the keys to this, because if you can encourage people to comply, it's um, so much safer for victims and, um, you know, puts perpetrators also on a much safer pathway if they can simply comply with an order and move on with their lives rather than being caught back and forth between different services and different um, government enforcement actions. And get angrier. Yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, if you'd like to know more about uh, Every Town for Gun Safety, which is a movement of Americans working together to end gun violence and build safer communities, um, you can go to their website, which is everytown.org, and there's also another one if you that has more detailed information, and that's everytownresearch.org. Uh, well, Jackie, thanks for coming in. I think it's a, we've really got to wind it up. We've got another show coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you very much for coming in and sharing your experience um, with Global and Collective and your monitoring of compliance with domestic violence gun laws in the US. Thank you for having me. Um, Living Free is going on holidays in January, uh, and we'll be replaying some of our 2018 shows. Next week, we start with Allah and Family Groups, and the following week, Gamblers Anonymous, then Alcoholics Anonymous, then Narcotics Anonymous, and we finish up on the 31st with Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous. We'll be back to normal programming from February 2019. Thanks a lot for listening to Living Free for the year. Uh, Thanks for your support.